Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to CanMedEvents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2021 event that will take place September 29th through October 1st at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. Okay, we have some pretty big announcements to make this episode. The first is that the early bird deadline for CanMed 2021 tickets is coming up fast. Be sure to register by July 7th to save $300 on your full conference pass. Second, we are excited to announce that Medicinal Genomics will be featured in an upcoming television series called High Science, a production created to highlight various facets of the cannabis industry and the struggles in its quest for legalization. The series will be produced by an acclaimed team of seasoned television executives, included David McKillop, the former GM of A&E, responsible for multi-Emmy award-winning documentaries, including the 20 Minutes That Changed America, and Gettysburg, along with other notable television productions. MGC scientists will dive into cannabis genetics, safety testing, regulation challenges, and much more. You'll also get an in-depth look into CanMed 2021, one of the industry's leading cannabis science conferences, as film crews tape behind the scenes and during the conference, interviewing speakers, sponsors, and those who make it happen. To learn more about this partnership, check out the blog on canmedevents.com. In other news, we have officially launched our CanMed archive page, which includes over 100 CanMed presentation videos dating back to our first event in 2016. The CanMed archive is a free, searchable video library covering a range of topics related to cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. Go to canmedevents.com and click the banner on the homepage to check it out. I also want to remind everyone that the healthcare provider study we are doing with the Cannabis Center of Excellence is still ongoing. If you are a healthcare provider, please take a few minutes to complete the survey to help us better understand medical cannabis knowledge, attitudes, and practices among healthcare providers in the U.S. and Canada. As an added incentive, one lucky participant will win a CanMed 2021 practicum and full conference ticket. The link to access that survey is in the show description. Okay, our guest this episode is emissions and air pollution expert William Visuete. Dr. Visuete works as the chief scientific officer for Bayer Scientific, where he analyzes cannabis and hemp plant emissions and helps to develop state-of-the-art order and emission mitigation solutions and equipment. For the past six years, Dr. Visuete has led a team of cannabis industry experts focused on site-specific research to increase the overall knowledge of cannabis industry emissions, educate local communities, and improve the tools and methods that cultivators and policymakers use to evaluate the environmental impacts of cannabis cultivation and processing. Dr. Versuete is perhaps best known for his groundbreaking research into cannabis emissions and air quality in Denver, Colorado. 
During that study, Dr. Versuete began creating a first-of-its-kind cannabis terpene library. Dr. Versuete will participate in the expert panel titled The Hidden Cost of Cannabis, the Environmental Impact at CAMID 2021. Topics we discuss in our conversation include how emissions from cannabis and hemp plants affect air quality and ozone, the difference between BVOCs and AVOCs, how the type and concentration of emissions from cannabis plants can vary widely from strain to strain, why cannabis cultivators should be concerned with controlling odors from their facilities, whether terpenes emitted from cannabis plants can taint neighboring wine grapes, and strategies cultivators can use to mitigate odors and emissions from their facilities. Before we get to my conversation with Dr. Versuete, I would like to thank this episode's sponsor, 10Buds, a site dedicated to all things cannabis with a special focus on growing and cultivation. 10Buds is packed with fascinating and informative articles, resources, and reviews. Cannabis growers, enthusiasts, and industry professionals alike can explore in-depth looks at everything from considerations for cannabis business owners to the evolution of marijuana's place in society, its health benefits, and so much more. Visit 10buds.com to learn more. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. William Viswete. Good afternoon, Will. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Okay. You are participating in a panel discussion at CAMED 2021 that's all about understanding the environmental impacts of cannabis and hemp cultivation. And I know you are an expert specifically in the area of emissions and air pollution. So maybe we can start the conversation with you explaining how cannabis and hemp cultivation can impact air quality. Well, that's a great question. And I think it might be really helpful if we kind of start with a little bit of some definitions of names and a lot of names being thrown around and we're going to be doing somewhat technical terms. So um, let's talk about uh, emissions from these plants. And a lot of folks kind of talk about terpenes. I know that's a word uh, that's used quite a bit or VOCs is another word that's used quite a bit. So let's just find what, define what that is. So a VOC is a volatile organic compound. So that's an organic molecule, so carbons and hydrogens. Uh, that at room temperature would rather be in the gas phase. So, so that's what we call them volatile organic compounds. And volatile organic compounds include lots and lots of kind of organic molecules. And one important organic molecule is called isoprene. Now, isoprene is emitted by every living thing on the planet. You and I right now are emitting isoprene out of our breath. And so is plants, right? And we've known that for quite a while. Now, if you take that isoprene and you put two isoprenes together as a building block, what you end up with is what we call monoterpenes, which is a class of thousands of molecules, including alpha-pinene, delimonene, some of these things maybe your listeners are familiar with. If you put three isoprene molecules together, you have something that we call sesquiterpenes, right? And so people like to talk about terpene, but when we talk about terpene, there's actually two large classes of terpenes. One's called monoterpenes, another's called sesquiterpenes, and isoprene, which is a building block for those, those things. Now, all these VOCs that come from plants 
we call biogenic VOCs or, or biogenic volatile organic compounds. The ones that are made from humans that usually come from gasoline or things like that, we call anthropogenic volatile organic compounds. And now we know in the air quality field where I come from, all these VOCs, whether they're from plants or from people, can participate in chemistry in the atmosphere and form both ozone and particulate matter or aerosols. And so understanding how these VOCs come from these plants is just as important as understanding where these VOCs are coming from people. Otherwise, we won't get a full picture of our air quality is being impacted in the atmosphere. And so that's how I came about looking at these emissions of these terpenes and their impact on air quality. Excellent. And I know that you, um, you published a pretty notable study analyzing the air quality in Denver, specifically with relation to cannabis cultivation. I was wondering if you could kind of explain the results of that. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, like I was saying before, we've known for a long time scientifically there's a connection between uh, these VOCs, monoterpenes, sesquiterpenes, and isoprene, and the formation of air pollution in the atmosphere. Now, I should note that, you know, these molecules by themselves are not toxic to humans. Um, in fact, most of these things have that, you know, nice smells and things, and we've come to uh, become accustomed and, and like these sorts of molecules. Um, and so being exposed to high levels of these terpenes is, is not harmful to human health. However, when you have combustion sources uh, that are with these um, VOCs uh, in the presence of sunlight, they can form ozone and particulate matter. Now, it actually depends uh, how much existing uh, VOCs are already in the atmosphere to see how much that really has an impact. And in Denver, Colorado, Denver happens to be high desert, and there happens not to be a lot of biogenic or VOCs that come from plants due to its, um, its, you know, its, uh, its high altitude. Hmm. And so you have a city that has lots of combustion sources, which are the cars, right, uh, from a large metropolitan city, um, but is starved. If it only had more of these VOCs, it could produce more ozone. Now, the other issue with Denver is that the city of Denver is in near what we call a non-attainment or it is in violation of a federal standard for ambient ozone. So any little bit of ozone contribution is going to push them in the wrong direction. Now, what's unique about Denver is that it needs those VOCs, but the state of Colorado has also made um, cannabis production under secure premises, which has forced a lot of cannabis production indoors and mostly in warehouses. And warehouses are usually located right near um, major transportation hubs. And so if I wanted to create more ozone in a place that was starved for VOCs, I would place those VOCs as close to um, the transportation centers as I could. And that's effectively what has happened. Hmm. And so I saw this and I thought, well, we need to figure out whether it, it's large enough that it could have an impact on the regional air quality, because that's really what the question is. Now, if I wanted to do this for, say, automobiles or a new power plant or a new gas station, I could go to the EPA uh, scientists and literature and look up what you know, the emissions would be from burning so many tons of coal or for burning so much fuel or for decreasing an engine. And I could look up how much emissions would go into the atmosphere. And then we have existing tools that both the state of Colorado and the EPA run that could predict its impact on air quality. 
And so when I went to look at this for the cannabis industry, there was no information available, no emission factors there to allow me to build an inventory, no information to allow me to uh, create those inputs into an air quality model to allow me to predict. And so <laughs> through a PhD student um, and some um, uh, money from the National Center of Atmospheric Research in the state of Colorado and some uh, collaborators, we were able to, for the very first time, um, measure what these emissions would be, um, build an inventory for the cannabis industry for the state of Colorado, and then used EPA air, uh, approved air quality models to assess its impact on regional air quality. So that's interesting. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So is the issue, it's not so much the VOCs that are coming from the plant themselves. It's when it's in combination with uh, the emissions from um, like you said, um, combustion or some sort of um, power plant or cars or something like that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you also need sunlight as well. So it's a combination of okay. all three of those things. Yeah, Denver. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, you know, so in the atmosphere, and, and so it also depends, it's a, it's a very uh, complex chemistry. So in fact, it's so complex that the Clean Air Act specifies specifically that you have to use an air quality model to assess whether your controls are going to work in the future, because there's all this combination of emissions, chemistry, and meteorology, both winds and sunlight, um, all forming together um, to in this really complex nonlinear chemistry that's occurring in the atmosphere. So it's it's really difficult, which is why we run these air quality models, right? Because I couldn't tell you, you know, just from looking at Denver to tell you what its impact would be because of all the interactions of these things, right? And so you're exactly right. And you could also think of indoors as well. Like if you had these VOCs, you have a light source, which could be your UV lamps, your grow lamps. And if you have any kind of combustion source or you're bringing in NOx combustion sources from the outside, you have a possibility of also generating ozone or particulate matter inside your facility as well. But you're absolutely correct. The VOCs themselves are not toxic. You can breathe them in at elevated levels. But as soon as they mix in certain combinations with what we call nitrogen oxides or NOx from combustion sources, in the presence of some sort of light, um, there's a potential for forming ozone in particulate matter. Yeah, so that's interesting. So moving forward, will some attention need to be paid as to where these cultivation facilities are placed? That's absolutely correct. So, you know, we have, you know, what's nice about this is that we have the tools to do this, right? Uh, you know, anytime somebody wants to install a new boiler or, or do a new uh, power plant, right? And they go for siting, um, there are tools that are out there to predict what the impact on air quality, water quality is going to be if that um, um, facility was put in. Right? And so we have those tools. EPA has those tools. We, uh, the permitting, we have a nice long history of being able to use these tools to develop these things. What is missing is the input data, is the understanding how the cultivation of these plants and what uh, the response and temperature and light and type of strain and life cycle um, contributes to these emissions. And then once we have that, then yeah, I could, we could cite these things. We could predict its impact on communities. We could talk about setbacks. We could talk about, um, you know, what sort of controls would, would be required and what those controls would do in the future um, if we had this sort of. So it kind of all goes back to if we understand how these plants behave and what they emit into the atmosphere, then we can rely on tools that we already have to, to learn about those impacts on both air quality, on terpene drift, and also on odor. But it goes back to understanding 
what is being emitted by these plants. And before my publication, there was absolutely nothing out there on, on what are, is coming out of um, these plants. So how does the emissions from cannabis compare to other commercially grown crops? Yeah, so um, as it turns out, the, the amount of emissions that come from plants are as varied and wide as there are <laughs> uh, species of plants. Um, just to give you an example, an oak tree emits, oh, I think an order of magnitude higher um, rates of isoprene than a pecan tree, right? And they're both trees. <laughs> and so there's wide variability, which, and this is why this has been a subject of investigation and research by EPA, NOAA, and a bunch of other national laboratories all around the world trying to understand these emissions from all these different kinds of plants and species. And so we have a nice database of you know, uh, com other commodity products um, and other large species of trees uh, because we have to run those in our air quality models. Now, when it comes to cannabis, as it turns out, uh, they contain a lot of the similar kinds of what we call monoterpenes which is a class of those terpenes, uh, and some sesquiterpenes uh, that we find in many other plants. Um, and so there's nothing really unusual as far as the type of monoterpene that's being emitted. As far as the rate, the amount, the magnitude that's being emitted, they're, I would say, on average. I mean, they're not the highest emitting plants that we've ever seen, um, but they're also not the lowest emitting plants that we've ever seen. Um, and so they're, you know, about an average emitter. Now, what's really interesting about the cannabis plant, however, that may or may not be different than other plants um, in that we've seen in our own analysis um, is that the amount, so the rate and the kind, like you know, the profile of gases of monoterpenes that are being emitted and sesquiterpenes varies wildly by strain. Mm -hmm. uh, so depending on the strain, you could have a much different amount of monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes being emitted as well as kinds of. Um, and we also see differences in the life cycle, whether it's a juvenile or flowering plant. Uh, we also see subtle differences, whether it's grown indoors or outdoors. <laughs> um, and so that was actually the most surprising finding I found in my research is how varied widely uh, in composition and rate among life cycle and strain that we see. And, and that means that there's not a one size fits all emission factor <laughs> um, in every facility if you want to um, build an inventory, it has to do a, what we call a site assessment. Like which specific strains are you doing? What life cycle are they? Are they being grown indoor? Are they being grown outdoor? Because um, all those things affect the emission rate. And then once we have that information, then we can build in controls. We can have impacts on air quality, on terpene drift and odor. But again, it goes back to understanding those emissions. Sure. It makes complete sense that you would see a wide variety in the different strains um, we see it in every other aspect of the plant, whether it be the height or the, the, the size of the flowers, the, the amount of the trichome. So I, I imagine that, you know, the emissions wouldn't be any different. Um, now, you, you said that there's a dif difference in the concentration and the different types of, of terpenes or emissions that the plants are giving off. Are there any uh, molecules specifically that are more troubling than others? Or is there a certain combination that, that's more um, a threat or is it kind of all the same? Well, it kind of depends on the problem that you're dealing with. Um, so what we're able to do in our own work is um, we can give a full compositional profile, a full characterization of every single kind of molecule. And there's lots of different kinds of things. It's more than just the terpenes, but there's other 
kinds of molecules that are being emitted by those plants. And so the techniques that we have allow us to measure all those things, right? And so we have a good understanding of almost every molecule that's coming from that plant. And so then your, your question was, which, which molecules are the most important? And so th that depends on the question you're trying to answer. So for example, if we're looking at terpene drift, um, one of the culprits that has been um, identified as, as uh, has the potential to taint wine um, is eucalyptol, which is a type of monoterpene. And so for um, terpene drift, we would model eucalyptol. That would be the, um, the molecule of question, right? And since we're able to measure all the molecules, I can say, okay, I know exactly how much eucalyptol is coming from each strain and each plant, and we can build an inventory and we can model eucalyptol going forward. If you're interested in air quality, then it's all the molecules actually. So every single one of those VOCs um, can react um, and, and potentially form ozone or particulate matter. Uh, it has more to do with the, um, the, the, the alkene, the, where the double bonds are, so the reactivity. And in fact, in our air quality models, we treat almost all the monoterpenes the same um, from a reactivity standpoint. And however, from an odor standpoint, it's something else altogether. And so uh, we um, seem to find that it's not the terpenes um, that are a main driver for the odor, although I think they pay, play a part in that. We're still trying to figure that out. Um, but it's a different molecule that you'd have to track and follow if you're interested in odor. Um, and so, you know, all three of those problems, right, uh, come down to what's being emitted by the plant. And so if you know which molecules are emitted by the plant, you can target those, you can model those, and you can also control specifically for those uh, molecules. No, and that, that's interesting you bring that up, and this might be a great way to kind of pivot into um, another area that your group is concerned about, which is odor. Um, and I know that recently your team had um, either put out a study or a press release, I think I saw the press release, about that you've identified the molecule excuse me, responsible for the skunky odor um, associated with cannabis. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, so um, you know, there's been a lot of um, work trying to understand um, odor impacts, right? And it's it's certainly a, an issue. It's a, definitely a community issue. It's a real issue, um, and I think it's one that you know responsible cultivation owners um, should keep an eye on. Uh, and it's also something that's coming down the pike um, with regulations. Um, you know, whether it's there already or coming, it's it's happening, right? And so understanding this odor issue has become a focus of our research in our in our company for for some time now um, and we've been able to collaborate with some really interesting folks um, who have also been in the odor space uh, but in other industries uh, not necessarily in the cannabis industry uh, like i think landfills and and, and meat rendering um, facilities um, and so um, working closely with um, these folks including iowa state university um, we and our own techniques and our ability to um, fully characterize um, the profile of these plants. Um, we use both odor experts and um, high-end analytical equipment to try to identify what we think might be um, ultimately uh, driving a large uh, source of the objectional odor from cannabis. And so the compound we found was this thing called 3-methyl-2-butene-1-thiol or 3-T1-MBT. It's a type of thiol, so it's a sulfur-containing compound. Mm. And so we were able to identify that, and we've seen that in, in other industries as well. Um, however, that's just kind of the beginning because um, we're, we're seeing all kinds of other molecules that are also there as well in addition to the MBT. Um, and 
it's not quite clear how the interaction between those terpenes and thiols uh, impact our perception of smell. Um, so there's a lot going on. So we, you know, I think it's just the start here that we've been able to identify what we think might be one of the objectable molecules um, that um, it makes a lot more sense in assuming the monoterpenes were driving odor, which um, didn't make sense just from you know smelling monoterpenes on their own. They don't have that odor. Uh, but you know these thiols, it seemed to make more sense to do that. And so currently, since we're able to identify the kind of molecules there are, we're able to adapt our control mitigation strategies to really go after those sorts of molecules and prevent them from leaving the facility at all. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I wondered if you could speak more to the issue of odor in regards to cannabis cultivation facilities in general, what is sort of the risk to cultivators if they don't have their odor under control? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not an odor expert, so um, I can't talk about, um, you know, for example, if, are there medical um, issues associated with odor? Um, and so I'm not going to speak on it, but I do know it's a nuisance, right? I mean, at the very minimal, um, people are not happy <laughs> when they're smelling um, that odor. And it's strong odor, um, and it carries a very, very long way. Um, and depending on how you're growing, if you've, I mean, we've seen even juvenile strains um, have odor issues, right? And I remember I was saying that even juveniles and, and, and um, uh, mature plants have different profiles and different strains. Well, sometimes we come across a juvenile that may have a higher you know, uh, emission rate and those are skinky. So you could have at any point in time from your facility, you know, 24 <laughs> seven, you know, odor issues. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you know, I've heard enough communities uh, who are next to these facilities who are being impacted by these odors uh, to know that it, it may affect your quality of life, right? You don't want to be outside. You don't, uh, you have to close up your windows and doors, um, you know, and, and some people do suffer, you know, physical, um, uh, you know, uh, impacts as a result of continuously smelling that odor. So it's not a good neighbor policy, right? Nobody wants to be next to something that stinks really bad. Um, and, and it brings a lot of attention uh, and issues um, to a facility that might normally might try to be doing the right thing. Um, and, and because of that odor, it puts all kinds of scrutiny um, on the facility's operation and what it's doing. Um, and they may have the best intentions. Um, and so, you know, it's a naturally occurring process that comes from the cultivation of these plants. Um, and there's really no way to get around it. And so you have to control for it and you should strive to be a good neighbor. Otherwise you're going to get <laughs> the scrutiny of not just the community, but also the regulators. Yeah. You, you mentioned regulators and I think you mentioned it earlier too. Have there been any you know, regulatory actions in terms of requiring that cultivation facilities control their odor, or is that still coming? Well, so, you know, the thing with the, the legalization of recreational and medicinal marijuana is, is that it's a, it's really a patchwork kind of place across the country, right? Um, there's yep. no, there's no federal. And even within the States, sometimes the counties have different ways of doing or approaching it. So, um, you know, are there places that are regularly saying that you can't do odor uh, from a county? Yes, I have seen that. Are there places that don't have it? Yes, I've seen that as well. Mm -hmm. um, are there places where it's exempt? For example, it's considered agricultural and therefore it doesn't have an odor. I've seen that as well. So, you know, it's all across the board, right? 
Um, and it also depends on where the facility is. If it's an indoor grow like in Denver, there's more likelihood that they'll be next door to residential communities. If it's grown outdoor on a farm, you know, maybe their neighbor is a vintner and not a, a you know, community. So, you know, they're more interested in the odor from their tasting room than they are, you know, mm. from a, you know, community. So it's, it's always, you know, again, just like the uh, strains and how they're site specific, I think dealing with this odor issue is also a site specific thing because our approaches are different depending whether you're an indoor grow, an outdoor grow, a hoop house, you know, all these things require kind of different um, approaches for control mitigation. But again, if you understand the rates and where you're, what's coming out of your plants, you know, you're already halfway there and trying to combat that issue. Yeah. So what are some of the solutions that you've developed in terms of controlling odor? Sure. So um, Bioscientific has um, a number of equipment um, that's available um, for mitigation technologies. Um, so uh, and this includes uh, combinations of, um, you know, um, filtration systems where we sequester odor molecules. So molecular scrubbing, which uses carbon. Um, then we have uh, a, our patent vapor phase system that uses waterless vapor technology and that controls uh, some of these kind of what we call fugitive odors, odors that uh, kind of leak out or that, that aren't um, uh, you know, effectively mitigated by a, a molecular filtration system, right? Um, and so, you know, with a combination of those two things that allows us to um, have a very good success for not only capturing, you know, preventing the majority of it leaving enclosed facilities, but also allowing us to deal with uh, facilities that aren't enclosed that aren't conducive to, for example, um, carbon control. All right. Um, and so, and then uh, we use um, what we call uh, coconut shell carbon. Uh, so these are camphill coconut shell carbon canisters that we're using. Um, we also have uh, an option to include a photocatalytic oxidation as another means of reducing uh, some of the organics if you want to you want to do that. Um, so that's in that system uh, that allows us to uh, you know uh, mitigate these kinds of odors, and you know it also allows us to capture the VOCs that may contribute to um, terpene drift or may contribute to air quality impacts as well. Yeah, so are these air filters that are sort of incorporated into the HVAC system? Uh, they can be, yeah. So, you know, so each, um, so we do on-site solutions. So it depends on the system that, you know, it depends on what you, how you're growing or how you want us to be put in. But yeah, I mean, eventually what we want to provide is, um, so what the emission rates allows you to, to uh um, quantify is what exactly is the breathing rate of the plant, right? What are they breathing out? And, and uh, what amount is that happening? And so with that information, we can size our instrumentation and our flow rates to capture what it breathes out, we breathe in, right? No more, no less, right? You don't want to do more because you're just wasting energy. You don't want to do less because that'll lead to a violation, right? And so, um, and so we work with the facility to make either an integral part of the HVA system as a standalone process or, or however it, it works best with the facility that we're dealing with. And what about outdoor facilities? I imagine that's going to be quite the challenge. Right. So that's where we have that, our, our vapor system. And so it's, a, it's, it's called a stationary vapor system. Um, it's quiet and um, it, it's, it creates, uh, an, it's, an, it's a mist, but it's an invisible mist. Uh, so you can't mm -hmm. really see it. And, and that has, and that and it creates kind of a, 
uh, you know, like a curtain, if you will, right? And so, and then when the emissions from the facilities hit this kind of curtain, it mitigates a lot of and eliminates the odors um, from going downwind. So, uh, in places where you can't control uh, with um, uh, carbon, right, which is like an open farm or things like that, uh, you can control with some of these vapor systems that we've been able to do outdoors. So, uh, we've been successful in mitigating odors both in indoor, outdoor grows, and kind of mixed grows as well. So do you essentially set up a perimeter around the grow and that sort of creates that curtain so that if any molecules interact with that, they're sort of um, neutralized? Yep, that's right. Wow, that's, right. that's, yep. that's, pretty, that's pretty cool. Um, you did mention terpene drift as well. I did want to touch on that. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you, you all were involved in a, a lawsuit where I think it was a... Um, a wine producer who was claiming terpene drift from a nearby cannabis facility was tainting their grapes. Um, I hope I have that correct. And if so, I wonder if you could speak a bit to that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the, we were definitely involved in that. And so, um, yeah, that was the question and continues to be a question. And so they asked us to kind of investigate and research that. And so uh, we developed a, a scientific way of trying to quantify uh, the amount of, of material that would end up you know, and whether it would or would not taint. Um, so let me just back up a second. So, you know, there's been, there's a published um, literature out there that has shown that eucalyptol, uh, which is a type of terpene and a terpene that is emitted in the gas phase by um, the cannabis, some cannabis plants, not all of them, by the way, but some of them. Uh, and um, eucalyptol has been found uh, when it makes its way into the wine process uh, is, has tainted the wine and the taste of the wine, ruining the wine. Uh, and so this is a known thing. Uh, so things, uh, when you have vineyards that are near eucalyptal trees, by the way, and you get eucalyptal leaves as part of the harvesting, those leaves make it through the processing. And, and that's a large amount of eucalyptal oil that ends up in your, in your wine. And so, uh, when it was found out that eucalyptal is a, a molecule that is emitted by some of these cannabis plants, then the question became, is it in sufficient quantities that it could taint um, the grape tissue, right? So how do you find that out? Well, again, like I've been saying this whole podcast, uh, it goes back to the emissions, right? So if you know how much is being eucalyptol is being emitted by these plants or a facility, uh, you could input that into an air quality model that uses local meteorology. Uh, you could then predict um, where those eucalyptol molecules end up and go. Um, and you can see how many of those end up at the, um, the vineyard in question. And then you can calculate, you can predict what the concentration of that eucalyptal would be um, outside that grape tissue. And then you could predict, okay, well, of that gas phase eucalyptal, this is how much that's absorbed by the grape tissue. And that would be um, the amount of eucalyptal in your grape tissue. And then we could compare that to the other studies that showed um, taint and how much material they had in their grape tissues and see how close we would get to that, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what we did is we went on site, or rather this was a, I take that back, this was a facility that was being proposed, so there was nothing on site. So what they did was they told us which strains that they were gonna grow, and then we went to our other various contacts um, in the business and we did our own measurements and developed leaf enclosure measurements and developed emission factors for those proposed strains. Um, he, the facility told us how many plants they were going to build, and we built an inventory. Then we took three years of meteorological data from the closest weather station was at the proposed site. 
uh, and we ran three years of model simulations using that meteorology um, and predicted the, you know, the worst case kind of concentrations at the location of the, of the existing vineyard, right? And then I said, okay, of that, this is how, how much of it would uh, deposit. And then this is how long it would take at that rate under the worst conditions of meteorology uh, for it to equal what was published for um, taint. And it ended up being, I don't have the numbers in front of me, unfortunately, but I mean, it was something on the order of a couple of years um, for, for the amount that's being predicted to get to levels that were seen in, in other publications as far as taint. Um, and so that's kind of what we, we ended up with. And so, and it makes sense if you think about it, right? Because the, the difference between what has been reported is that eucalyptal leaves, which contain um, um, pools of oil of eucalyptal. And so that's a large amount of eucalyptal when you're in that concentrated oil form, right? What's coming off the cannabis um, um, is in the volatilized form. It's in the gas phase. And, and these are volatile organic compounds. So they don't want, it's hard for them to go back into a liquid phase. And once they're volatilized and they're in the gas phase, they tend to stay in the gas phase. Um, and so very, you know, we have some that's being emitted, some that makes it over there, some that makes it on the grape tissue, but just not at really measurable quantities. Um, and that's what the predictions and the, and the data told us. Okay, so in this example, it, it's good news. Terpene drift is not tainting any grapes. Are there any other potential um, scenarios where terpene drift potentially could be an issue for other agricultural crops? Uh, I mean, so I'm not sure because, um, you know, that uh, I'm not in that area where, you know, what, what sort of uh, uh, terpenes may be harmful to what sort of plants. The only thing we've right. heard about is, is wine and specifically with eucalyptal and maybe a couple others that have been shown in the literature, right? Um, and so that's why that's an issue right now. I mean, there's still several things that we don't know about. I mean, for example, uh, you know, I've measured, we have this library, right, of um, emissions factors from these strains. But, you know, just in the state of Colorado alone, there's 600 plus different strains. And, you know, we have you know, a number of strains, but not nowhere approaching the order of hundreds of strains, right? So there's still a lot of uncertainty. And just within the strains that we have, we see some plants with no eucalyptal emissions and some with, right? And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of uncertainty just in the emission factors. And then, you know, there's uncertainty as to, you know, how much is too much taint, right? You know, there's this number that we got from this other study, um, but, you know, that's a whole lot. You know, is there, you know, what's the minimum amount? What's the threshold value? Like, what would be the target? And that's still kind of an unknown thing, right? There's a lot of research that still needs to be done to really understand uh, whether this is an issue or not. You know, but from what I've seen and my gut tells me <laughs> um, is that since these things are volatile and given the amount of emission rates that we see, um, it's something that we should probably model and, and look at. Um, but, you know, just from the data that I've seen so far, it may not be a huge, huge issue, right? Um, not something that's really surprising or really popping out. Um, but, you know, unless we have some data, we can't quantify these things. We can't predict these things. And, and this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to fill in these, answer these questions with some real data and some real science so that we have an understanding of whether things are an issue or not and to what extent they're an issue. And, you know, and by the way, <laughs> those uh, models were done with no controls, right? And so if we had controls in that facility, 
uh, we would even less eucalyptol would make it over to the vintner. And lastly, I don't know if you remember me saying this earlier, but you know, these monoterpenes like to react in the atmosphere. In the middle of the day, they have an atmosphere collapse time of a few hours. So they're not just hanging around <laughs> in the middle of the day, they're actually reacting away pretty quickly. And when that's another thing that we didn't assume in the model. So we had this very conservative upper bound concentration and we still didn't even get near uh, what we would think would be shocking levels of, of eucalyptol in the grape tissue. You know, it's funny. I've been doing this podcast for over a year now, and I can't tell you how many times guests have said, we just don't know yet. And there's still so much we need to learn. Um, it's just such a common refrain in this industry, which is what makes it so fa fascinating, so exciting, and why we love doing this conference every year. And happy that you're going to be a part of it. I'm really looking forward to the, to the panel that you, you're going to be on. So winding down here, I did want to give you the opportunity to plug any websites, social media, or additional resources that you think might be useful to the audience. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, everything, if you are interested in learning more about the company, including uh, the documentation, some of our case studies and uh, um, references that I've published, um, I think the best bet is to go to our website. So that's buyersscientific.com, buyers, B-Y-E-R-S-scientific.com. So check us out on the World Wide Web. Excellent. I will do that. I'll put the link in the show description so people have an easy way to, to get over to that website. So, Will, thanks again for, for joining us. Uh, it's been a great conversation, and I look forward to seeing you out in Pasadena. All right. I look forward to go out there and uh, take it easy. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. William Viswete. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to our sponsor, 10Buds. Our next episode will drop July 7th. That's two weeks from today, and it's also the deadline for our early bird rate. Please go to camatevents.com now to secure early bird pricing and save $300 on your full conference ticket. Be sure to keep up with us on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And finally, we appreciate it if you rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Doing so will make sure that we can reach more people with the podcast. All right, that's it from us. Thanks again for joining us, and be sure to stay safe, stay healthy, and come back for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.